A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Friday, Casey edition. Casey and his ridiculous history t-shirt sucking up to Noel. Yeah, about that. <laughs> like, I, I end up wearing this on an inordinate amount of, like, remote podcast recordings where there's a camera, just because this is one of the more comfy t-shirts I have around at the moment. Right. Um, and I'm always self-conscious about it, but then I'm always going for comfort over wanting to, you know, not choose something that's so on brand. But there you have it. Right. Well... I'll tell Noel. I'll pass it along. That you, your comfiest shirt is his. Well, it's not his face, but I guess Rasputin's face. <laughs> yeah, it's Rasputin. <laughs> Wrapped up on your body. How you doing? You know, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm just kind of sick of you know being at home all the time. But that's everybody's uh, state of affairs if they're lucky enough to be able to stay home. So can't yeah. complain too much. But yeah, I mean, no, I'm I just eager to kind of I don't know be in the world again i hear you me too buddy uh i appreciate these hangs with you that that makes life a bit more worth living it really does it really um you get that sense of connection back a little bit which is super important yeah you know i actually i saw you one time since this all started we didn't we didn't speak but i had to run by the office for something and you happened to be in the studio um probably doing something you know remotely yeah. And I was going to like tap on the window, but I think you guys were actually like actively recording. So I just kind of kept it moving. But that's uh, funny. That I've is... been in there uh, a couple of times and heard, you know, the exit door is right there next yeah, to our studio. Exactly. Yeah. And I've heard that door open and shut, which is a little eerie when it's, you know, the Walking Dead town. Exactly. So, like, yeah. <laughs> you hear a door open and you're like, who is that? <laughs> no, I'm always like when I'm going in the office now, which is not frequent, you know, once in every few weeks at most. But, um, it is always sort of like, is somebody else here? Is somebody going to like yeah. come come around the corner and scare the crap out of me? 
Well, uh, we're all masking up in there and unless like there's nobody there. Yeah. But if there's been a couple of times there's been like, like Ben came by when I was in there the other day and, uh, Ironically, Ben's desk out of that huge office is the one closest to mine, <laughs> which is probably like 10 feet. Sure. Um, but yeah, Ben had a mask on and I had a mask on. And I was like, all right, good to see you. I'm going in the studio. And that yeah, was about exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, the the social interactions now where there's like this low level, like, I kind of wish this other person wasn't here vibe. It's very, very strange. But <laughs> I've definitely gotten it where like I'm just walking around my building or something and you know, you pass by somebody in the hallway and you have that moment of like, I kind of wish, you know, if I don't have my mask with me or something, it's like, yeah, oh, there's like another person, there's an obstacle. Yeah. I went to get, I was getting on the elevator. I had called the elevator at work and it opened. And right when it dinged, I went to step on and this guy came kind of hustling up behind me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, uh, go ahead, dude. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting on a fucking elevator with anybody. I'm right not in now. that big of a hurry. Yeah. No, not at all. Oh, well, but, but um, other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm having a good time. It's just, um, yeah, like I said, I don't know. I miss going to the movies. I think that's that's a big thing Jeez, too. No kidding. I miss live music. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's, that's live music's gonna be the last thing, Casey. I know. Yeah, it's, you know? they're they're getting. Uh, do you see Gray White played a show? No, who's that? Great White. This is an awful story. Great White is the band that uh, oh, wait, back the, in the, the 2000s. Metal bands? Yeah, yeah. Okay, the one that played the show with the pyrotechnics and fire started and like 100 people died. They're yeah, playing a coronavirus them. show. Are they? Well, yeah. they figured we, we, we blasted people up 25 what's, years what's ago. What's the worst so. we can do? Yeah. <laughs> a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) 
What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, dude. So you are here to uh, your next movie pick was the 2000. It's hard to believe this movie's 20 years old, but the I 2000 uh, sibling indie drama. You can count on me from writer, director, uh, playwright, Kenneth Lonergan, although this was not a play first. I uh, believe this was just his first stab at a movie, right? I think he had written he'd written some screenplays before this. Like Yeah, analyze this. Exactly, yeah. And I I'm sure he probably did script doctor and maybe sold some more that that we haven't mm-hmm. heard about. Um but this is certainly his first one as like writer director, you know, writing something that he himself wanted to to put up on screen. Yeah, I read a little bit with him yesterday. He wrote Analyze This and he wrote the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. That's right, that's right. And uh the the I think it was like a ten years on sort of piece on You Can Count On Me, which those are always kind of fun to read. Sure. Uh, like retrospectives. But he said, yeah, he said, you know, I made my name sort of writing those movies that were fine. But this is clearly when I got a chance to direct my own film. This is way more my speed. Yeah. Uh, and the, he said the initial idea just came to him very simply, which was. What about a story of two siblings where one is kind of a consummate fuck up and one is always worried about him? Right. And they and they were orphaned uh, when yeah. they were young. And that's one of the things I love so much about this movie. And it's one of my favorite films. I've, the first time I saw this movie in the theater 20 years ago, it uh, it resonated with me a lot because sure. uh, I, I talk about my brother a lot, but I have an older sister who's six years older than me. And we are very close as well. And I was always sort of the black sheep of the family. And I was the wanderer all over the country and I never had a job that was not waiting tables or something. And everyone was always like, what's Chuck going to do? What's, where's he going to end up? And low level worried. I wasn't getting in bar fights and thrown in jail, but you know, bopping around the country, uh, smoking weed and like just living my best life, which is not what they were doing. And she was one of those that got married young uh, or young to me, you know, in her early twenties to her high school sweetheart. And, um, great dude that he's awesome and they're still married, but just different paths in life. So this movie really, really resonated with me as, uh, like I'm kind of him and she's kind of my sister, Michelle. Yeah. It's a very, very special movie to me. Absolutely. The same with me. Um, I, I found myself watching it, you know, for the first time in a number of years last night and 
it was it was just interesting. I mean, we talk about this a lot in this show with movies that I've seen maybe 20 years ago and that I'm seeing again now, although I yeah. have seen them in the years in between. But there's just something about the shift in perspective. And I For felt sure. like this time I, I, I could basically see everybody's side of it much mm-hmm. more clearly. Whereas before I was maybe a little bit more like, even though he's a fuck up, I was still on, you know, uh, what's Team Terry. Name? Yeah, Terry's, Terry's <laughs> side of things. Like, it, you know, it was just like, man, the guy's cool. Just give him a break, you know? And watching it last night, it was really like, no, he really does like, he's kind of a, he's kind of a train wreck and, and he, he needs to pull it together and he is actually hurting people around him. So it's not as if it's just his own trip that he's on, but, um, especially like his girlfriend that's pregnant, that, that whole part hit a lot heavier to me. Um, the way that he's clearly almost kind of running out on her in a way, at least he's tempted to. That first scene with him is really tough. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and just so well played. And this was the first time I had seen Mark Ruffalo. Oh, yeah. Who, as, I think, is the stuff you should know, listener. He tweeted out an episode of ours once, uh, the Trail of Tears episode, and uh, got no further confirmation of anything. But uh, I think he listens to stuff you should know, which made me super, super happy. Oh, man, that's so cool. That's yeah. really great. I'd like to get him on this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be killer. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I didn't look up his filmography. Do you know if this was his first role? It's like his breakout role. So he'd been in some stuff up to then, but I don't think, I don't know if he necessarily had any leading roles and he certainly hadn't had anything where, you know, he felt like he could fully embrace the, the material and become that character and, Mm -hmm. and really give it like a a thousand percent the way he does in this film. So this is definitely like a big breakthrough for him. Yeah. He's so great. And the, the acting, I mean, Laura Linney, so good. It's, so good. Yeah, man. I'm just in love with her. She's as an artist. She's uh, she's one of those people that uh, and she's so well cast in this. And I think Ozark because of this quality, which yeah. is the warmest human you could imagine and the warmest smile. But there's also this thing where she's not to be trifled with and she's not to be fucked with. Right. A little yeah. bit. Oh, yeah. And she's, that's, a, she's, that's a tough she... one two punch to pull off, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. She, she remains very warm and open and sympathetic, but at the same time, you don't want to cross her and she's going to call you on your BS. So you better be on top of things. Yeah. Yeah. That scene later in the movie when uh, Matthew Broderick is essentially trying to fire her and we'll, we'll get into all this stuff, but uh, I love that because I remember the first time I even saw it thinking, oh dude, don't do it because you just had an affair with her and she could fucking take you down. Yeah. Not smart. He's, he's, he's very, um, He's great in uh, this too. He, yeah, Matthew Broderick. I love Matthew Broderick because apparently he's um, Kenneth Lonergan and he have known each other since they were like fifteen. Um, they go way back. And um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They're like they went to the same school, oh, and cool. um, the school actually that they both went to, um, which I, I think we're we're sort of talking about making this a little mini director series. Is that correct? Uh, what Lonergan? Yeah, so we'll do Margaret. Oh, that, that's and, fine. Uh, Manchester by the Sea, and then that'll be. I it, haven't seen either three. one of those, dude. No kidding. Wow. Wait, did I see Margaret? Who was Margaret? Uh, Anna Paquin is the is the lead in Margaret. No, Matt Damon, and uh, uh, I have not in seen it again. either one of those, and I avoided Manchester by the Sea on purpose because I knew it was such a downer. Yeah, and uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it, and then never got to it. Watching watching this again, it was it was definitely like, oh, this is almost like a companion film to uh, Manchester by the Sea in a way. I mean, all his films center around kind of prominent deaths and then the fallout and the effect that uh, that has. Okay. 
yeah. on, on the characters that are left alive. But um, definitely that one is in a, in a heavier register than, than this one, which remains a little more comic and light at times, even if yeah. beneath the surface there's, there's real stuff, heavy stuff going on. Um, Manchester by the Sea is a little bit more self-consciously like Bergman-esque or something where it is kind right. of like pretty dark and there's a lot of humor in it too, but no, no question a darker film. And Margaret, I want to say is a little bit more of a blend of the two. Uh-huh. Uh, Margaret has a more kind of expansive view of the world, even though it is still based on this one central character. There's so many like peripheral characters and they all kind of get their their moment to shine mm-hmm. uh, anyway we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it so but the the thing that i the reason i brought up margaret was um matthew broderick and kenneth lonergan went to the same kind of like prep school together and there's mm-hmm. a prep school in margaret that is basically there are scenes in that film that he's writing with his recollection of like class discussions and arguments and so on that happened to them oh, cool. when they were in school and now I, is is he in either one of those because he plays the priest in this movie? He's in both, yeah. To, to great effect, I think. I mean, he's he's very understated in this role. Uh, oh yeah, and he's it, great. It doesn't require some huge range, but uh, it's just so kind of perfectly played. I think. No, he's great. I love uh, his 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 character as the as the priest. Um, you get the feeling he has a crush on on uh, Sammy. Yeah, and he seems he seems a little spaced out. He seems a little bit like he could be <laughs> he a stoner does. or something, or, <laughs> or or maybe he just comes by that disposition naturally, you know? Because he's he's very much like he he is so uh, opposite the whole black and white, you know, good and bad sort of uh, evaluation. He's not a fire and brimstone guy. He's like a yeah. Ah, what do you think? You know, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that. I can't really tell you the right answer, but you know, do with it what you will. Yeah, try not, kind to, try of not the, to hurt anybody. That's that's about it. The you know? ideal priest. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> he's like a almost like a therapist, really. You know, for the town. Yeah, absolutely. And that scene is great too when she uh, when Sammy calls him in, basically, and Terry is just so fucking pissed. Yeah, and it's just boiling beneath the surface. But there was also this. Um, there's so many layers, I think, to so many of these scenes. Like he was upset. But the way that the priest was challenging him was working, and yes. you could tell. Oh yeah, and that kind of made well, he him gives more a very upset, like sincere answer. Yeah, once once he kind of cracks that armor. Yeah, the the one thing that especially watching this last night and then watching it again immediately after with with the Lonergan commentary on the DVD, um, you you quickly realize that all these scenes have multiple layers happening at the same time. And Lonergan talks a lot mm-hmm. about how in terms of writing the dialogue, like he really enjoys writing dialogue, but at the same time, on a certain level, the words are not what it's, what is important. What's important mm-hmm. is what the scene is quote unquote really about and all the sort right. of behavioral stuff that's happening parallel to the dialogue. So, you know, if somebody's uh, telling a story that we're having a conversation about their day, it could just as easily be something different happened to them in their day, yeah. but it's more about, how much is this character really listening to this other character? Is there something else on their mind? Um, yeah. Is there something that they're trying to get out of this interaction that's going unsaid? And and but we as the audience are kind of becoming aware of it and so on. It's all that stuff that that you don't you don't just give an actor or a character one thing to do in a scene because that's so mm-hmm. flat and boring. It's sort of like you want things to be at kind of cross purposes or parallel to each other or um, just just to give the sense of like life is going on it's not just that these people are chess pieces on a board 
they're these three dimensional human beings and they have these kind of conflicting impulses and um, at any given moment, like they're being pulled in different directions and against their own like worst instincts or better instincts. So all of that gets thrown into the mix um, pretty much in, in all the scenes of the film. Yeah, I, I think that's um, when you start writing scripts, it's one of the biggest lessons you can learn is uh, like you were saying, the dialogue isn't, and I don't want to say rarely, but um, a lot of times it's not even what is going on in the scene. And that's the best stuff. Otherwise, it's too on the nose. Right. And if you think about real life, how many times do you have um, just even passing conversations with someone from work where what you're saying is not really what's either going on or what's on your mind? Exactly. Yeah. You, and it you know, happens people, all the time. Yeah. People, people talk around whatever it is that they're really thinking so often because maybe they're averse to confrontation or they just right. don't want to worry the other person with whatever's actually troubling them or they have maybe they someone's have, a huge asshole and yeah. you can't let them know that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You have to keep things kind of civil. Yeah. So, you know, you have the quote unquote professional relationship, but in the back of your mind, you're really thinking, boy, that guy is just a pain in the butt, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Lonergan is so good at, at, at doing that. And it's, I think it's very rare for, especially for a writer director to have that kind of attitude towards their language, towards their words. He's, mm -hmm. he's definitely not like in the Coen brothers school of like you left out a period or a comma sort of thing, um, which is works wonderfully for them as well. But you yeah. get the sense that for Lonigan, if, if, uh, if a line is, is giving an actor trouble, it's sort of the thing of like, well, how would you say it? Or how would the character say it? Or yeah. what, what, what would work better there? And, and adjusting things on the fly on set, as opposed to like the script is this thing that's written in stone every pause and comma and hesitation and uh has been like scripted out in advance. It's, it's definitely not that. And I think that's, that's something rare, like I said, for a writer director, because they tend to be very uh, into the language and the words and the precision of, of that and the control it gives them over the Especially overall in a drama. Right. Exactly. Um, and so for Lonergan, he says that even though he is a screenwriter, he, when he puts on that director's hat, it's sort of like, he, it might as well be somebody else's script. He will cut yeah. stuff. He'll change stuff. He'll rework it if it's not if it's not what he wants it to be. And um, yeah, it's it's great that people that some some directors can really have that level of perspective and not get overly like attached to yeah um, the words. A screenplay the words yeah. Um, another thing that really knocks me about uh, knocks me out about the script is how much is not said. Um, there are a bunch of examples in this movie where. Um, and, and he does it in a bunch of different ways. There's a few examples I can think of. There's at the very beginning after, uh, and of course we're talking spoilers as always, everybody. Yes. But the very first thing that happens in the movie is, is the parents get, are killed in a car crash. Um, did not recognize that that was Amy Ryan, by the way. Yes, I know. I know. This is <laughs> in like a, in uh, a one minute scene, not even 20 second scene. Yeah. It's funny. Um, this is like the the first of two that I can think of um, beloved things with both uh, Amy Ryan and Steve Earle featured in some way. The other would oh, be well, The Wire, of course. Oh, right, right, so, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, Steve um, Earle's all over this to great effect. I, I, yeah, and I didn't I didn't pick up on the Steve Earle until like the credit song where I was like, oh, that's Steve Earle singing. And then like yeah. as the songs are going by, I'm like, oh, there's like seven Steve Earle songs yeah. in this movie. <laughs> but um, the first example is when that, that state trooper shows up. Um, and, you know, that's sort of a tropey scene where the state trooper knocks at the door in the middle of the night. Right, right. You know what's happening. And the babysitter answers the door and he asks, you know, to tell the kids you're going to be back in a second. 
and then he kind of inhales and it cuts. Yeah. Like he, you don't see him say it. So that's left unsaid. Um, later on, uh, the priest, uh, when you have the woman, uh, priest during the wake, mm-hmm. uh, She's talking and giving a, you know, I was about to say performing the wake, whatever you say, <laughs> leading the wake. <laughs> sure, sure. And the music is, is uh, bed is laid over it, this great yeah. classical score. And then th- the most famous of all is at the, the last scene of the, the movie, ending, which yeah. we're going to get to. But yeah. um, the, the thing that they always said to each other as kids clearly is you can count on me. Right. And I love that they never say it because that is oh, 1000% so how that would happen between those people. Yeah, you, you wouldn't you, say it out loud. No, I mean, in, in the really bad, like, corny notes from the studio version, you would, but... Oh, I bet uh, you somebody tried to get him to put that in there. Oh, yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's almost like he's, like, rubbing your face in it that, like... Yeah. No, I'm not going to say the title of the movie. You're going to have to fill that piece in yourself, but... I it's mean, so it really works. Though. That's just how it... It's like in um, in movies, you know, um, or in real life, people don't really call each other by their names that often. And, and yeah. when you see that in screenplays where people are constantly, like you know, or a couple is sort of like rehashing their recent history that again, you would have no reason except right. for exposition just to deliver. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's so, um, he's so well attuned to those little subtle things and it just, I don't know why, but the effect is so powerful when you yourself have to kind of fill that gap in your mind. Cause you know, they're both thinking it and it's, uh, you're almost like a participant in the scene in that way. Yeah. And it's just, it's so effective. It's, you know, it gets me every time. Every fucking time yeah. that last scene destroys me. Yeah, I, I, Emily went to bed last night because we had a big day yesterday with Ruby's birthday. But she uh, she said, "How was it seeing it again?" And, and I was like, oh, "It was unbelievable." I said, "I didn't wake you up at the end." She said, "No." I was like, <laughs> "I was fucking sobbing, dude. Yeah. I was yeah. I was losing it yeah. like at midnight in the dark in my room. I was just Aww. could not keep it together during that scene. And I knew it was going to wreck me. It always does." Yeah, there's there's that moment in the film. There's the one a little bit earlier on where. Um, he's sitting on the bed. She sits down next to him and she says, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea if you stayed home for a while. And he breaks almost immediately. And it's again, like something about just the way he, he performs that bit. I'm getting like goosebumps yeah. just thinking about it. Cause it's so, his it's voice so just quivers real. a little yeah, bit, the, the little quiver in oh, the way he lowers his head. And he just like, you know, that feeling where he can barely get the words out. It's just like, yeah. he's having such a hard time. And yet he, he wasn't going to say anything, you know, he was going to just, Act like it was all fine. Because he's always okay. That's yeah, who he is, right. is. No matter what's going on, even if I went to jail, it was like, it's all fine. It's all fine. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the things I love about that last scene between them. He says things a couple of ways that um, make you realize that he knows this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and he's not being... Uh, um, a Pollyanna and just saying, everything's great and going to be great. He says something like, you know, comparatively, it's not going to be that bad. Yeah. He <laughs> says, no, nothing that bad's going to happen. Yeah. Nothing like, that bad is going to happen. He's just reassuring her like, you know, I'm going to go back to Worcester. I'm going to see this girl. I'm going to, yeah. depending on how that goes, I might head out West. I might go to Alaska. I might do this. I might do that. But, you know, throughout it, he's sort of saying like, and if that doesn't work, I'll figure something else out. Like yeah. I'm a grown up. You can relax. You don't have to like. Right. But he wasn't saying lives or three lives, you know, for all of us. He wasn't saying I'm going to be awesome. He was saying, right, I will be basically okay. (laughs) I'll be a grown up and I'll deal with it as it as it comes. And it won't be perfect. It'll it'll be far from it. But, you know, you can you can rest assured that, um, you know, you don't have to be there to supervise. It's not like, um, yeah, it's that desperate of a situation. Yeah. 
Well, and this is a sister who keeps a file drawer labeled Terry of correspondence. All the correspondence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is just so sweet. Um and and what a jumping off point to have these two siblings that are in real life separated by about four years and you kind of get the picture that's about what it is in the movie. Right. That just you know, they they're they only have each other. And yeah. that's such a powerful place to start a a, a dramatic storyline, you know? Yeah, so many other family dramas, you would have like the kind of extended family to fill things out or to complicate things or maybe to kind of keep things a little bit beneath the surface or something. But because there really is the two of them and they are kind of alone in the world, except for with each other, um, it just makes it, yeah, it just makes the emotion more palpable and the relationships are that much more dynamic and um, critical, you know, because that's like you said, all they have is each other in this world. Yeah. Uh, the other one, another line that really stands out to me early on is when that that scene with the uh, his girlfriend um, and wasn't that uh, Gabby Hoffman? Yeah, I believe I so. I believe so. But he says and it's such a brilliant one liner that says so much about this character was uh, I'm not the kind of guy that everyone says I am. Right. And yeah. that just says it all about this guy that's constantly defend having to defend um, the things that he's done, knowing that he's done a lot of wrong things. Yeah. And it's, it's the Lonergan talks about on the commentary, how it makes him even more interesting and maybe frustrating as a character is the, the level of self-awareness he has about all this. Yeah. And yet w even with all that articulateness and self-awareness and, and just kind of knowing quote unquote, the kind of guy he is and the kind of guy mm -hmm. that people think he is, he seems like he's unable to kind of get a grip, get a hold on it mm -hmm. and make those changes and mature a little bit and no longer be sort of like the professional screw up. But, yeah. you know, it's like he, he knows he's doing it, but he, he can't he can't resist it in some ways. And I found myself, especially throughout this viewing, kind of feeling like at, at certain moments, maybe he was going to take that next step and mature. And then he would just do something that would kind of yeah. like. You go, oh, Terry, come on, man. Like, I know, you know, especially like after the priest visit, for instance, mm -hmm. where he's obviously angry at Sammy and he wants to get back at her in some way. And so he uses oh, God. the kid by proxy. That was so the tough. Fi the fishing trip. And it's like, man, that's such an immature dickish yeah. move, you know, but I mean that, uh, that that he himself could see clearly for what it is. Yeah. But maybe only with a little bit of remove because in the immediate moment, he's just angry, you know? Yeah. And of course, it, it's it's so rich. Like, um, there's such an undercurrent of he is hyper aware that he is the black sheep, that he is the, the outcast and so mm -hmm. on. And that she is looking at him as the failure, the thing I have to worry about and deal with and so on. So all throughout when he's living there, anything that she does that's not completely above board he yeah. like seizes on it to say, <laughs> yeah. as if to say like, look, you screw up too. Like you make mistakes. You, you're you yeah. having an affair with your boss, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he wants to kind of like break out of that, that role as the screw up because it, he feels like it's, it's something that's mutually reinforcing, you know, like everybody perceives him as this thing and then he just continues to be it and it wears him out. He talks about that in yeah. that first uh, lunchtime scene when they first meet up. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, the other thing that I, I feel like because there's the reference to her being a wild child, but she's gotten it together. Right. But there's something about his presence that I think has allowed her to be bad a little sure. bit. Um, maybe because he's so much worse. Um, but she's, 
I think she kind of brings out that wild in him and, you know, smoking a little pot with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something that she sounds like she hasn't done in a long time. Right, right. Starts this affair. She can't decide whether to marry this guy who's just sort of, I mean, he's not a bad guy at all, but, you know, she's boring. That, yeah. And then yeah. that line that she has when she's talking to the priest really says it all. She's like, I feel sorry for them. Yes. And that's that like is, that why is she's sleeping with them. I mean, that's, she feels sorry for, for both the guys. She feels sorry for her brother. You know, she, she, she basically feels like she has the whole world on her shoulders. It's not, she's an just, empath. Yeah. It's, it's not just her life that she's living, but she's really trying to manage and, and make sure that all these other people are going to be okay. And I think that I, I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think there's such a deeper connection there in terms of them having lost their parents at such a young age. Yeah. I think for her, that just drove her to feel like it was on her as the older sibling, right. Mm -hmm. To, to be this kind of guardian for everybody. And so that's a role that she feels very comfortable in. And that has extended to just her boss at work or this guy that Mm -hmm. she's dating. You know, it's just like the mode that she operates in is that, um, I don't know. She, she likes, uh, she likes a flawed person, a a project, somebody that, well, look who her ex-husband was. yeah, and it's like she she sees that and she's kind of like, well, nobody else is going to take care of this person, so I guess it's got to be me because it the thought of somebody just being out there in the world without anybody to look after them yeah brings to mind like her and his situation as kids. So I think that's, you know, to a large extent where where that impulse comes from at a deeper yeah. level. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she's she's definitely someone who makes a for him being the fuck up, she makes a, just a series of bad decisions. And then when we meet, uh, and I said ex-husband, I, they probably weren't even married, but um, Rudy Sr. Uh, in that that great kind of short scene by Josh Lucas, um, yeah. he, that was a bad mistake. You know, she's clearly drawn to the wild side a little bit right, right. and had a kid with this guy. And uh, that scene, man, talk about another heartbreaking scene. Oof, the yeah. whole time that Mark Ruffalo was in the car. And, you know, this is a good launching off point to talk a little bit about Rory Culkin and one of my favorite kid performances and kid relationships with an adult in a movie. But the whole time where he's like talking about wanting to go meet your dad, he doesn't live far from here. I'm just going, no, no, no. This is a train wreck. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and it's just so fucking tough to watch that scene. I was thinking about that, too, last night, like the the argument that... um, he and and Sammy have afterwards where she says like, look, he's going, he's eight or nine years old. He's going to realize soon enough that the world is, is terrible and Mm -hmm. people are shitty and you know, there's, there's no good. There's no, everything's bad about this world. He's going to figure that stuff out soon. Why do you have to like go and rub his nose in it? But honestly, like whether, whether he's thought about it consciously or not, he's kind of reenacting the same sort of bubble bursting that he and she experienced as kids too. It's yeah. almost like they didn't really get to have a childhood. They had to grow up real fast after they lost their parents. So that's and, what he knows. Yeah, that's what he knows. And that's he kind of thinks like that ought to be the natural state of a kid is being confronted with reality, being confronted yeah. with like yeah. the screwed up nature of things, as opposed to he's so angry with his sister for, quote unquote, sheltering him, you know. Yeah. And and I, I think partly it's maybe because he's had a rough life. And yeah. so he thinks of the world that way as something that's going to chew you up and spit you out and you better be tough to deal mm-hmm. with it. And he sees this kid who's kind of living this charmed existence, very sheltered, and he wants to toughen him up a little bit. But at the same time, what he's really doing is kind of 
you know, reenacting his own trauma in a way yeah. of like, it's not the same thing exactly, but it is both about, they're both kind of quote unquote losing a parent in a way or never having one yeah. to begin with. So, yeah. um, yeah. Well, Terry kind of, um, he, he punishes other people when he feels bad about himself. Uh, he lashes out, um, like you were saying earlier when he's mad at Sammy. So he's taking it out on Rudy and she, that scene where she calls him on it in the hallway is so yeah. great Yes, where she's just you know, like, you son of a bitch. Like he's a child and I know you're mad at me, but like, and that flips him, you know, he shows up the next day with the fishing poles after church and kind of just shrugs, you know, that that's such a great exchange because they're another, another dialogueless, just, yeah. you know, uh, uh, an exchange of, of looks basically. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, he, he feels bad about himself a lot through this film and it feels a lot of guilt and then takes that out on other people. Yeah. Which is a human thing to do, you know? Absolutely. And whether he even consciously realizes that's what he's doing, that he has this pattern of punishing people for his own shortcomings, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I, I love that about, about this film that, um, the characters really are three dimensional and we can see that they have some very deep flaws in some cases, but, they're never really unsympathetic. It's just yeah. like we, we recognize our own kind of um, foibles in that as well, I think. Yeah. And, and I think he's a character who um, in a very non Hollywood way does end up at a slightly different place than where he came in. Um, yeah. Not in some great place, but that line early on is such a sad line where he says, I'm just trying to get on with it. Like that's what life is to him. And I feel like at the end he, and, and he even says this, um, he wants to see her again. He wants to see Rudy again. He wants to spend Christmas with them, not something he's going to do out of obligation. And you can tell it's important for him that she knows that, that he is, yeah. that this stay there changed him just like this much. It's, you know, it's kind of like the, the whole boy who cried wolf thing a little bit because he's probably made these same promises and so on many, many times before in his life. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard in a way to know, well, is he going to really make good on these promises? Because you still can't, even probably even not. when he's supposed to like <laughs> go see the kid before he leaves in his last day, he's know, late man. by like an hour and they almost leave and then he yeah. finally shows up and he's like, sorry, I'm late, you know. Yeah. Is this that is just his state of being is to be perpetually like a little bit behind yep. where the rest of the world is and to be very apologetic about it and yet seem incapable of um, making any changes to to improve on that. And, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of a line. Um, there's a line in a Wilco song. All my lies are always wishes. Yeah. You know that one from. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really is true. It's the sort of thing where like. It, it, it's kind of an attic thing too, where every time there it's like, this is the time I'm going to quit or this is the time I'm going to yeah. stop doing that. Or that's never going to happen again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you wake up with a hangover. Oh, that's the last time I'm ever going to drink. And then it's sort of like, yeah. it just, it just floats into the ether. And then the same behavior happens over and over again. And, um, so I don't, I don't know. It's part of the, the human film, condition, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's for, for it's a lot of people very to human be, to all of us. Yeah. 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 To be, to be caught in a, in a perpetual cycle of something that's not great for you. Yeah. Um, and, and to, to, to realize that. And yet yeah, you haven't quite yet reached the point where you can actually change that. And some people of course never do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that scene earlier too, where he's first kind of gotten into town 
and he smokes the joint in the alleyway and then kind of goes out to the main street. Yeah. And he sees the sheriff who's an old <laughs> friend and he sees the old man. And, you know, it's a small town and everyone knows the orphans. Yeah. Um, everyone knows these two, uh, Sammy and Terry. And uh, one of my favorite sort of plots in movies is the, or at least themes is the, you can't go home again thing. Right. Right. And, this is about a lot more than that, but it definitely has that thread and it's always impactful to me. There's something about leaving and coming home. That's just really resonates with me. I think in films that scene where, you know, it's, it's very early. It's, I think it's maybe his first night or second night at home where he goes out to the bar by himself. Yeah. And he's just sitting there wordlessly, like drinking the beer, smoking the cigarette. Nobody's sitting next to him. There's really nothing going on. He's looking across at like one guy And he's doing that thing where he kind of nods and he's like bouncing around, but Mm -hmm. there's really nothing to be excited about. And you can just tell he's like, he's so alone. He's so utterly alone. And um, maybe that's a bar that he used to go to with friends and so on, but it's, it's completely not the same anymore. And, um, and he obviously he feels very, very ill at ease and like uncomfortable in his skin in that moment of just being confronted with like, there's not really any distractions. I just have to like sit here and, you know, think about the time that's passed and what has or hasn't gotten better or changed for, for the better in my life and so on. Yeah. There's that scene in the bar and then the other great, great bar scene when he takes uh, Rudy yeah. out to shoot pool. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that, that's one of the really sweet sort of great moments of this movie is because you're waiting for something bad to happen and nothing bad happens. Right. He doesn't get in a bar fight. He bonds with them. The kid wins the the pool game and yeah. uh, they get busted trying to trying to sneak up the stairs. And um, it's such a great scene, but it also plants the seed of uh, something that comes back around later, which is he really gets pissed off because he thinks Rudy has uh, sold him out ratted on him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And ratted on him. He didn't do it. And I love that part where Laura Linney is like, he didn't fucking do that. The, yeah. you know, Sheriff, what's it called, told me. Right. And he's, he's just, he plays it so well because he's like, well, uh, and he says something dumb and she's just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Like she's just so over him at that point. Yeah. That's, that's such a real moment when, um, I mean, I love, I, that's always very interesting to me in movies where you have kind of a, an adult child relationship that gets beyond just the sort of niceties of like, you know, authority and, and, and so on where, where they're really having a a more of a connection as quote unquote equals, although they're not equals, but they, they meet each other where on on this ground where it is possible for them to have arguments and get angry with each other and for one to feel like they disappointed the other one and so on. And um, yeah, I love, I love that moment where the, the various moments where he really, he really treats the kid like a adult for better and for worse, you know, Yeah. in times where it's appropriate in times where it's not so appropriate, but, um, definitely like he's, he's, he's treating him as, as somebody that as a he peer. doesn't just have to talk <laughs> down to. Yeah. It's a peer. He can really be honest with him. And it's great a lot know. though. That first scene when he comes home from the bar, when he had been out by himself right? and he goes to his room and the, and, and the and, rant and, about, yeah. And Rudy wakes up and he's like, you know, this used to be my room. He's yeah. like, you want it back? <laughs> no. <laughs> and then Rudy has one of the best lines in there when he's talking about what a shit town it is. Yeah. And uh, and he says, he's like, what do you even like it? Like He's like, I don't know. I like it. And he's like, what do you like about it? And he goes, I don't know. My friends are here. I like the scenery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so great. 
So yeah, I cute. love. Yeah, and and of course the the rant that he's going on, where he's like, this this place is so small minded, and all these people are so yeah. conventional, and they don't, you know, there's a big world out there, and I've seen a lot of it, and these people uh. know nothing of it, and um, he's and that's right when he tells him and, his, and he's, his and he's dad's a dick, way, you know. Yeah, that's when he yeah. and he and he says uh, it's a great line too though when he says, so he's like, but your mom is the best. He's like, so you had some bad luck and you got some right. good luck. Yeah, you so kind of nice. got two parents in one with the super mom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other part that I loved when they went to smoke the joint was, uh, and this is one of those movie moments that just you can't plan for and it just happens and you use that take. But yeah. uh, when the moth lands on him, yep, yep, it's so cool. I didn't even remember that from from when I had seen it before. And yeah, watching it again, I was like, oh my God, like that probably only happened that one take. Yeah. The way that Ruffalo was so in the scene and the character in the moment yeah. that he could just take that and use it and uh-huh. not even, there's a moment even later on where uh, I think the moth kind of comes back, it lands on Laura Linney for a second oh, and really? it kind of flies off past Ruffalo's head. And at that point, they've they've kind of the the scene has taken a turn and it's gotten a little more serious and he's really paying more close attention to what she's saying he's intent yeah. on her and so the moth just kind of goes past him without acknowledgement it, it's really really interesting the the way that even within that one scene even within that kind of like semi-improvised mm-hmm. thing with the moth that like it was all oriented around the character and the tone of the scene and his motivation from from moment to moment is just like really really great work yeah and he didn't like if I was outside talking to Emily and a moth landed on me, I'd say, oh, my God, look. Exactly. Like, yeah. I've got this moth. But he just sort of cares for it for a brief moment, and then it goes away, and he stays in character. Um, did Lonergan mention that in the commentary? You know, I didn't. I don't believe so. But I'm also not sure if I got quite as far as that scene this time uh, with the commentary. I don't think so. I think, actually... Um, he was talking about something something different, but I do know, like in in interviews, I think it's it's come up once or twice. Yeah. Uh, so let's chat about Broderick for a, a bit. Yeah. Um, he's so great in this, and uh, this is sort of the Matthew Broderick that I love the most. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of the election character. Absolutely, yeah. Same. Uh, but you know, this guy that is doing all the wrong things as the new boss. Yeah. But he's not aggressive. He's not coming in there and yelling at people, but he's just – and she, she said later, she's like, you're making everybody miserable. It's like he's he's enacting whatever his own internal yeah. like uh, dysfunction and, and sort of neuroses or whatever, like whatever that, whatever that sense of um, – I don't know. He feels like he feels like in order to be a boss, he has to micromanage everybody, obviously. Or maybe and, that's the control he needs because his right. wife does not like him very much. Exactly. Yes. He's like domestically, maybe he feels powerless. And so in the office, that's like his domain. And so even though it's this like backwater branch that like nobody's really even paying that close of attention to, yeah. he's like, we're going to get this thing up to like major market standards. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to run a tight ship around here. And the fact that everybody has this attitude like, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's a small town. Like, yeah, that's the thing we need to take care of, you know. <laughs> And like, if you're going to get your kid at 315, that is just, just non-negotiable. We can't have that, you know? Um, yeah, which is such the wrong way to come in. Yeah. Uh, you you need to come in and say like, you know, of, of course you can go get your kid. Right. Because that's important. Um, I love the part where they go to dinner uh, later uh, and they finally kind of are breaking bread and having a beer together and a shot. 
And it's another one of these things that's sort of left unsaid is when she goes, oh, well, you know, it's hormones with your wife and she's pregnant and it's a lot. And instead of really getting into it, he just goes, no, that it's, it's not that. He's like, it's not. It's it's more than that. But let's talk about yeah. something else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's all you need to know. And that one yeah. little brief moment when she's in the office and you see her just kind of shove his hand away. You know, they're they're going to get divorced before she even has that kid, maybe, you know. And he, he kind of glances back at Sammy like, oh, you see what I have to deal with here? Yeah. And again, like that, even that little moment, it's like he has more of a connection with her than he does with his wife. That's right next to him. Yeah. Yeah. So they start the affair. Um, and, you know, she likes being bad for a little while. She uh, you can tell that she's she's partially like and she even has that one line where she's like, this is unbelievable or whatever. Yeah. After like, they have sex. And she's like, yeah. no, that's not she's what I'm like, talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she can't believe that she's in this situation where she's between these two guys that she doesn't even really like either one of them that much and goes to the priest and asks about like she goes. I feel like she goes to the priest because she needs somebody to tell her to stop. Yeah, she wants like some absolutism. You know, she doesn't want shades of gray. She just wants very clear black and white. Like you're in the wrong. You're going to hell if you don't fix this. That that sort of thing. Which is interesting, though, because she admonishes Terry for doing the same stuff. Like, she can't stop it on her own. She knows it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. But she needs a priest to tell her, like, you can't do this. And he doesn't really do that, actually. He doesn't really do that. And even after their conversation, she kind of keeps it going for a little while. So, yeah, you know, she's she's slowly moving in that direction, but it's just going to take time. It's it's not like anything that um, somebody else can say to her. She has to do it for herself, you know. She has to learn that lesson or yeah. make that decision to really um, change things. Yeah, there's something about that role reversal with her being the irresponsible one. And then as Terry is starting to be a little responsible that right. I think that's sort of such a key crux of, of the film, that moment. It's partly, I mean, they're they're both enabling the other one to do that. So she's had to be the single mom who's just ultra responsible never lets loose, never, yeah. never relaxes, is always just having to be on top of the next thing coming. And um, hit by, by uh, Terry being there, now she's got a babysitter, right? She's got yeah. somebody that can like get him after school and, you know, maybe. <laughs> keep, keep, yeah, maybe keep, keep him occupied and, and, and entertained and, um, you know, nothing too bad is going to happen presumably when it's just the, when it's just Terry and the kids. So, she can she can relax a little bit, even though not really, but she can relax a little bit and then, you know, start up like these flings and just kind of like mm -hmm. have that have that aspect of her life that she really hasn't had before. And on the flip side with him, you know, you think about that scene very early on when he's just gotten home and he's in the bathtub. Yeah. And it's it's just a quick scene, but he's in that blue tile bathroom with like the blue towels hanging on the towel hanger. Mm -hmm. And uh uh, you know, it's this moment of like serenity of quietude and he kind of looks around like he's on like a different planet. Like, well, so house he grew up in it was probably the tub he grew up bathing himself in. Yeah. But he feels like a million miles away from that. Yeah. You know, it all feels so strange. Like, well, one, one thing I've always noticed about like my childhood home, which my parents still live in is that uh, going back as an adult, the rooms always seem so much smaller than they did when you were a kid. I don't know yeah. if you had the same, have the, the same uh, phenomenon, but yeah, totally. Um, it is very much that thing if you can't go home again. So whatever this bathroom meant to him at some other point in his life, it doesn't feel that same way now. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's more like, I think it's less about what that room even is like when he's in it 
Yeah. Versus him just thinking like uh, these, he's in such ordered, clean, mm-hmm. calm surroundings and everything in his life before then has just kind of, we get the feeling it's been chaos and disorder yeah. and disarray. Yeah. And he, you know, he operates in chaos, but I feel like, and he operates as someone who's continually fucking up, but I feel like he wants to be more. You don't see him strive to be more much, but right. I, I think one of the key sequences is when um, they kind of spells that out is the, the plumbing thing. Like mm-hmm. he's trying to fix his plumbing upstairs and it really, really upsets him that he can't do it. And then he has yeah. to call that plumber in. Yeah. And that's just such a so symbolic, I think of who he is. It's like, I couldn't even do this one thing that I was trying to do the right thing. It hurts, it hurts his pride because I mean, that's you, you get the sense that he's been kind of like a handyman, just like yeah. doing odd jobs a lot of the time for work. And, um, and so he, he takes a certain amount of pride in that I'm sure. And, um, uh, and it, it hurts him that, um, you know, here he is back with his big sister and, he wants to show that, hey, I can do stuff too. I know how to do stuff. Yeah. And she doubted and, him, you know, and she was yeah. like, why don't we just call a plumber? And he was like, right. he's going to do the same thing I'm doing. Yeah. But but yeah. he was wrong. He couldn't do it. And then when the plumber's there and he's downstairs smoking the joint, just like seething. Just ices but him out. seething how Terry seethes. Like, right, right. Mark, Mark Ruffalo is just so great in this. There's so much below the surface. Uh, the only time you really see him. Uh, let loose is when he kicks the shit out of Josh, Josh, Josh Lucas, which was great. Yeah. yeah. But also awful. Cause it was right, right in front of Rudy. Yeah. That one, that one is definitely feels like he, he crosses a line big time in that scene. And it, th- that is kind of the moment where you're like, man, maybe he really can't like be trusted with a kid. Unfortunately, yeah. as great as he is with a kid and in, in so many other ways. And it, it's such a contrast to see like the, the quote unquote father figure that he is able to, is capable of being for Uh this kid versus, you know, the Josh Lucas, like, I don't know that kid, like, even though it's heartbreaking, clearly, I mean, they even have like a little bit of a physical resemblance, I think, which is cool. Totally. Um, But he has that moment where he like, the only thing he really ever says to him is like, there, you saw me, see me. Great. Like, are we done here? Fuck. That was hard. It's brutal. Um, and you know, the, the thing that's so frustrating when you watch this movie is that, Laura Lenny, she's she's starting to get the one thing she wants more than anything, which is Terry to be in Rudy's life with yeah. some kind of consistency uh, and even some kind of influence, even though she doesn't always agree with it. Uh, like when she's early on when, you know, she doesn't think he gets picked up from school and is frantic and goes right. and he's at the, the house building site together teaching him how to swing a hammer. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't think any dialogue there when she shows up. It's just that's what she wants more than anything. She wants Terry to be okay, and she wants Terry to be in her life in some way and in her son's life. Yeah, that's that's what she wants more than anything in the world, and she feels like she's almost going to have that, and then it just doesn't happen. And yeah, um, yeah, that 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 scene is 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 interesting because the way it cuts, like she she kind of comes up behind them as you know as he's son it showing him how to swing the hammer and everything. She doesn't say anything. And then the next cut, she's like back in the office again. Yeah. So I almost wondered, like, did she just kind of turn around and leave them alone and like not even acknowledge that she had been there? I think so, man. I think that's the implication. She was just kind of like, oh, this is fine. I don't have to like worry so much about, he's got, he's got a handle on it, you know? He's, yeah. I mean, she's, she's very happy to see that moment between the two of them. So it kind of makes everything okay. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I love the, that's, that's something that the movie does a number of times where rather than like hearing the next line that we all know is coming, we just cut yeah. to the next scene. Yeah. There's, you know, there's, uh, like I said, there's, there's many moments. The one you talked about at the very beginning with the, the sheriff at the door and, mm-hmm. you know, where he's like, he's about to make his speech. He's about to say whatever he's going to say and there's nothing to say. And so it just cuts away. And there's, there's the moment where, um, it's the, it's the date with, with Bob, like yeah. the first time that they're kind of back together yeah. and there's just sort of like a, a little pause in their relationship and she goes to take a, you know, a little sip of wine or something. And then it just cuts to the two of them that afterwards. And in that cut, we, we, we can just fill in the whole evening, mm-hmm. how things progress from there. And, um, yeah. Lonergan yeah, talked love, about I that, love... um, in an interview I read, uh, the 10 years on thing where he was talking about going into a film for the first time as a director, he said, everything that I had written looked great on paper and it read great. And he said, but I realized that every scene had a beginning a middle and an end. And he said, so it kept, he said, it felt like there were, I was always stopping and starting and stopping and starting and there was right. no flow. And he really credited his editor, I think with a lot of those choices, which was lopping off that end or maybe lopping off that beginning and right. letting the audience infer the rest. And that's such a valuable lesson for, um, and I bet you, I bet that helped his writing immensely, like from that point on as well, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, he, he talks on the commentary about there was a tremendous amount of material that was cut from the film because so much of it, there would, there would be a scene that he had written to make sure the audience understood this or that about the character. Yeah. And maybe that entire scene could be replaced just with a glance, with a certain look or a certain gesture that was nonverbal yeah. in a different scene while something else was going on. But if we're paying attention as viewers, that we'll pick up on. And so, you know, a lot of it ended up being redundant, even though as a writer, it felt good to kind of fill in all those gaps and, and just kind of make sure he covered all the bases. When you're thinking about it as a film, and there is so much that can be done visually, nonverbally, and so on. Um, so much of that material could be could be lopped out, and it is very, very elegantly done the way mm-hmm. um, the film is edited. I mean, that's something that, uh, for instance, during the big um, initial lunchtime conversation scene, yeah, the way that the rhythm of that scene, the way it's edited, suddenly it's very like kinetic in a way yeah. that most of the rest of the film never is. It's much more still and calm and. He likes to sit on shots for a longer time. But when yeah. that conversation and argument is kind of like heating up and Terry's really nervous because he knows he's got to like drop this bombshell any moment now. Um, the the pacing of the editing and the way that he's overlapping dialogue and, and clearly using different takes and so on to kind of construct this scene that never quite happened the way it happens on screen when they were actually performing it. Right. He says that there were like four minutes in the middle of that scene somewhere that they just lopped out because again, oh, like emotionally they were already where they needed to be without having to do any of that stuff so yeah man this makes me want to write again uh a movie like this really inspires me a new season of bridgerton is here and with it a new season of bridgerton the official podcast i'm your host gabrielle collins and this season we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. 
I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the music. The um, There's a great mix of uh, classical pieces, notably mm-hmm. Bach, uh, the yeah. very famous one performed by Yo-Yo Ma, that cello piece. Right. And then um, a lot of the Steve Earle and I think Loretta Lynn and mm-hmm. just some sort of fringe country stuff. And it really sure. all works well together somehow. And it doesn't seem like those two things would fit together great. But um, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't it, it think, works. but. One one sort of, uh, you know, you could say classical is a little bit more highbrow and country uh-huh. is a little bit more just like popular. Um, but it, like you said, it works great. It, it shows the the two tones in a way that the film is working on. Like there is this small town folksy kind of feeling to it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the film is taking a little bit more of like a, a cosmic view of things. I think yeah. that's where some of the classical stuff comes in to give it just another 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 tone another level um of feeling and to kind of um 
I don't know, just just bring our minds somewhere else because I feel like if this were all country and all kind of um, you know diegetic music, let's say, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have the same feeling nearly as as having this kind of like outside classical music that's almost a little bit more of a commentary on things or yeah. it just it comes from a different place than than the country music does, but they both have their place in the film. Yeah, and when he chooses to use the um, classical pieces are really impactful too. Um, like the last the last set of sequences, like the last maybe 10 or 12 minutes of this movie are just so uh, beautiful. Uh, when yeah, he, yeah. when he goes to the cemetery and like hikes up that hill, mm-hmm. um, I, I got the script yesterday and I was reading it and it was all very much written to direct, you know, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing than just writing a script to submit. Uh, you can be a lot more flowery and you can right, right. just add a lot more stuff in there. But he talks about walking up the hill to the grave sites, yeah. putting his hands on the graves uh, the gravestones, uh, and that's where you've got that great uh, classical vocal piece. And the sun's kind of going down, but it's not, you know, you see this sort of cat's, low-level cat skills in the background, but it's not set up to be, all right, this is going to be the most beautiful shot you've ever seen, and we're going to yeah. have this great pink sunset. Right. Uh, the movie is very subtly beautiful, I think, but not because he's trying to wow you with shots. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's beautiful in the way that a place – that is beautiful is beautiful to the people who live there. Right. Yeah, man. So you're not, it's, it's not just that like you're the tourist from out of town who's like taking all these postcard pictures. Right. It's more something that it almost becomes a part of you, this natural beauty and you can still notice it at times, but it's, it's a little bit more subdued, even though you do enjoy it. Um, it just, it just makes the backdrop of your life as opposed to like the main attraction. So it doesn't really call attention to itself in that way. Even if it's, I mean, you can tell in that scene, maybe he's thinking like, oh, this is like a really nice, peaceful resting place for them. Like at least they have this, you know, it could be, could be worse. There's that, there's that scene. Um, and I only kind of noticed it this time when he's initially coming into town on the bus uh-huh. and he's driving by stuff that he goes past that cemetery and yeah. he kind of, he looks out the window at it. And even though there's no words spoken, yeah. we can kind of assume, cause we've already seen uh, Sammy there that it's the same place and so on. But um, yeah, I, I, I really like that scene. That's another scene that by another director in another film could be very, yeah. very cliched or overwrought, but oh, so, and they another get it movie, just right in this film. He, I think. he would have talked to the gravestones, you know, like it w- it could yeah. have been that on the nose. Um, the, w- right. What you just mentioned though, when he was going into town, there's something about the way that these characters feel so real in this space. Um, there's just, it's hard to define. I don't think you can even direct it necessarily, but when he's walking down that sidewalk earlier or when he's smoking that joint in the alley, you get yeah. this feeling that he has smoked a hundred joints in that alley. Exactly. Yes, or had a yes. hundred, you know, a thousand Budweiser's in that maybe same bar stool right. uh, that he was sitting in. It just feels like these people have grown up there without being on the nose about it. It's so lived in. And I don't know how they managed to pull that off because of I mean, magic, I think. Yeah. It's, it's magic. And I mean, even in terms of like the shooting, um, I, I, you know, this being a smaller budget film, this being a first film and so on independent. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they had like the luxury of a ton of time. Right. I think, I think every day they're in that indie situation of like, we have to get all these shots. There's even, there's even a moment on the commentary where, uh, it's the moment where he's trying to fix the plumbing 
and uh, the pipe kind of comes out of the ground and it sprays her skirt that she's just kind of put on, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, and Lonergan on the commentary talks about we only had like four of those. Yeah, you know, it was reversible, so we had <laughs> two one color, two the other color. Yeah, and uh, and and like even in terms of like the cutting of the scene, whatever, whatever. It's like he has to pick because it was the other color skirt in the other two takes, right? So it's you really only get yeah. like two times of two takes to to do it, and uh, you know they were having trouble with like the water coming out of the pipe correctly and everything, and like it's just one of those things where you realize all the things that he's having to juggle just on very real practical levels at the same time that they're trying to do this very subtle emotional heartfelt thing. Um, yeah. And it really is just, it's just super impressive that despite all that, you know, despite shooting at a sequence and all the rest of it, that it just feels like the relationship between the two of them is so real and solid mm-hmm. and genuine. Um, he, he talks a little bit about how in terms of the scheduling of the scenes, he didn't want to have any of the major big set pieces too early in the schedule. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it was either the lunchtime scene or one of the other kind of big blowout scenes in the movie was originally scheduled to be like the first thing in week two. And yeah. he had the, the AD move it back to like end of week three so that yeah, they smart. could at least, you know, build that rapport a little bit before they had to jump into the deep end. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, he, despite the fact that they're all under pressure at every moment to like get the shot, move on to the next setup and so on. Yeah. Uh, do it as, in as few takes as needed and so on. Um, that it's, it still has this like lived in feeling as if the crew and the cast have been hanging out there for like months on end and just like getting to know the place, getting to know the people and getting comfortable with everything. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting how, how, um, that all manages to kind of coalesce. Yeah. I think sometimes, man, there's, there is a bit of magic that happens and you just can't, these movies come along that just, it all comes together. Uh, and, and a lot of times there are these little indies, um, that are so dear to my heart. And, you know, first movie as a writer, director, it's just pitch perfect. Everything about this movie is perfect. There's not a single false note. No, uh, there's, there's no moments where you're kind of like, oh, that's like a first director thing to do. Or yeah, you know, there's, there's no, like, there's no shots that are just, you know, here's my big, like steady cam one take thing that doesn't really need to be here, but I'm yeah. just going to show off as a director. There's none yeah, of that. It's not so flashy. Subtle. Um, it, and the kids very, stuff too, it's, uh, to, yeah. to, to bite off such a, um, such a, a substantial role for a child in I a know. first movie is that's tough to pull off. Everybody and, would tell you, don't do it, right? Yeah, Don't like, do it. But kids it's and dogs, so kids it's, and animals. Don't, yeah. He, he just, he just, he nailed it in every way. Such a beautiful movie. Um, I encourage you Casey to read the script or yeah. at least read parts of it. The, uh, I'm going to read a bit from the end. Sure. And this is after, and by all means, read that whole last scene as it's written. Like, I don't know if this was transcribed afterward or not, but it, it, he, he's very much has every single word sort of mm. nailed down. Um, but after they embrace and he gets on the bus, um, Sammy, you know, waves goodbye to him. And then she gets in her car for that last bit. And that same sort of shot driving into town. Yeah. And she's late for work. This is one thing you got to remember for this part. Uh, she's blown off work again. And it says interior Sammy's car uh, yeah. moving day. Uh, the morning sunlight flickers through the windshield into the car as Sammy drives along toward work. She passes the town hall clock and sees that it's 920. 
She dries her damp cheek with the forearm and rolls down her window to let the morning breeze blow through. Uh, squaring her shoulders a little, she drives through town at a slow and easy pace. Hmm, that's great. Boom. So good. So there you have it. You have like, there has been change. There has been, she's learned to like ease up a little bit, you know? Yeah, she's and not hurrying back to work. She's not hurrying uh, back to work. And of course, her situation with the boss has changed. So she probably knows she has a little bit of that leeway. But even if she didn't, you get the sense that she's kind of reoriented herself a little bit and she's no longer going to be quite as tense and, you know, just like yeah, uh, panic from moment to moment. She can kind of slow down, experience life again, not just as this never ending series of like tasks and things that she has to worry about all the time, but really yeah. just like feel the sunlight coming in through the window and enjoy the music and see yeah. the town and you know, the, the cliche stuff, stop and smell the roses, all that, but it really is true. Yeah. And that's when Steve Earl comes in. Uh, and then the very beginning of the movie, you know, the, the very first line, I think this is, uh, there's like, there's something about what are you doing the moment you die? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they get, they get hit by this truck and you know, the mom, it opens the movie with the mom just saying they're clearly like coming back home, I guess, after a, a date. Right. And she goes, why do they always put braces on teenage girls at the exact moment when they're the most self-conscious about their appearance? <laughs> yeah. And it's just such a real moment. And he goes, I don't know. And then th four seconds later, they're dead. Yeah. It's so, um, so ho -hum, the way the way you would think it would probably go down like yeah they're they have no idea they're about to die they're just making small talk in the car from right from, not even small talk i mean it's it's a genuine thing like she she had this thought pop into her head singing about her daughter he, yeah and and he um his response is kind of like eh, i don't know like that's a good point and and then it's all over and um yeah it's interesting the I, I read one one review that said that the, the kind of framing device of the film of the parents' death to him felt maybe a little bit overdetermined, like everything that follows is just cast in the shadow of this happened, therefore their relationship is like this or their lives turn out this way. Yeah. I don't I That's fucking I mean, true. <laughs> yeah, it's a big it's a big deal when your parents die in a car wreck like that. Man, I mean that, shit, I punch like that. that guy. <laughs> that's just that's just the way it is. I mean I can I, I do understand his point that if the same exact thing happened to someone else, maybe they still grow up to be a fully functioning, well-adjusted adult that has, know, has, you know, moved past it, let's say. I think but that informs everything. Kids, the age that they were at and everything and, and yeah. just the fact that the two of them had to go through this together and um, there doesn't seem to have been, I mean, we don't really learn how, what happened to them after that. It seems like they did stay in that small town. Yeah. It's not really clear exactly who raised them after that, right? There doesn't no, seem there's to be not much like extended of the family aunt or, or anything. Yeah. 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 And I but, think, so, you know, they may have shot that. Who knows? But right. I think a lesser writer would have put that stuff in there. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. In, the, in the scene right before the wreck in the car, he would have, a lesser writer would have been way more on the nose about like, talking about the kids in a certain way that really right. kind of gives you a bunch of information about yeah. who they are yeah. rather than this just sort of beautiful moment about talking about braces and how funny it is in life, how, you know, how cruel it is in life to get the braces when you are self-conscious and yeah. And they don't have it. to say the names of the kids or anything. It's, yeah. it's so part of who they are in every moment they're living that obviously it goes without saying that's who she's talking about, but it, she yeah. doesn't have to say it that way, which is great. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, all right, dude. I got nothing else. 
see this movie, everyone. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Yes. It's yeah, it's on Prime. It, it's a nice like HD transfer. It it's, looks considerably better than the DVD. Um, I've got a signed DVD from Mark Ruffalo. No way. <laughs> yeah, my oh, friend. That's uh, amazing. My friend worked with him on uh, which one was it? I can't remember. My friend Stacy, who's a uh, as a wardrobe supervisor, worked with him and told uh, she knew it was one of my favorites and said, "My friend Chuck is just like you can count on me as one of his favorite movies." And she brought in the DVD and he signed it to me personally, and it was very very sweet. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, really, many, really cool. many, many years ago, man, before he was Hulk. That's an awesome story. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to dig that thing up. And I think rewatching this, I mean, uh, Ruffalo was still great, but it, it was almost like rediscovering in a way, just yeah. like how amazing he was right out of the gate. Um, he's made a number of films that I really like, but I, I still kind of wish that there were more films like this that yeah. he was able to do that are just, so character driven and small and perfect. And I mean, it's, this is, it's hard to top this, right? So I understand that careers move on and, and people take on bigger roles and so on. And like I said, I mean, he's, he's done a number of things that I really like, but at the same time, I, I still sort of feel like, man, like there's, there's even more potential there, um, yeah. that, that I hope he will, he will be able to, um, to tap into, you know, in, in yeah. the, in, in what's, what's left of his career. Yeah. He's got a long way to go and he's yeah. made all that Marvel juice. So that's right. Go back and you gotta be able to do some, him. some small stuff now. Right. <laughs> uh, so I agree, man, let's continue with Lonergan. Uh, I have not seen those other movies, so that's perfect. Um, Margaret, I guess Margaret is, um, is that next? Yeah. Margaret is next. And okay. there's, there's a lot, a lot to say about that film. A lot of the backstory, I don't know if you're, you're aware of much of the the difficulty and even getting mm-hmm. that film made, uh, ended up in court with recuts and arguments with the studio and all kinds of stuff. And it actually, oh, it will, it will play into how we watch the film because there's a theatrical version that I think is mm-hmm. about two and a half hours long. And there's the director's cut. That's a little over three hours. Wow. And and it, they're not even it's not even that there's 30 minutes more scenes in the longer version. It's essentially like a different movie. The there there's different sequences, there's different takes, there's different music. Um the sound wow. mixing is is extremely different. He goes for this like Altman-esque kind of 12 tracks of dialogue all overlapping kind of thing. Yeah. In in the longer cut in the um the theatrical version all that stuff is reined in and it's much more just about one character. So, uh, both versions are available. Ideally we would maybe watch both, but, but I know that's a, a, a tall order. So maybe, maybe we'll just go with the, uh, the extended version. Director's Cause that cut. really is like his vision of the film and yeah. the one that he was in court for multiple years battling to get this thing out there the way he wanted it to. Um, so yeah, that'll, that'll be next up. Sweet. All right. Thanks, brother. This is, uh, as I always say, you're one of my favorite people to talk movies with. Uh, you too, man. I'm, and uh, I really, really, really uh, enjoy these a great deal. So Yeah, me too, brother. So let's uh, thank everyone else for listening. And uh, I encourage you all to watch this film and go ahead and get Margaret, the director's cut going and Manchester by the Sea and get primed for those. And I'll have you back in and whatever, five or six weeks. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. See you, buddy. See you, man. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.